At our uh, Tuesday staff meeting this week, we were, ended up going around the table talking about our, our first jobs, the first things we did to earn a paycheck, and uh, how young we were when our kids made us go get that first job, when our parents made us go get that first job. And uh, we, we talked about that. So I got to my turn, and my first job was in seventh grade, and it was delivering newspapers in the, in the neighborhood that we lived in. And so I would jump on my bike on Tuesday, Thursday afternoon, Saturday morning. Sunday morning was another day of delivery, and, and I would take the, the newspapers out to the neighborhood. And uh, about that time, this is like the mid-80s, about that time, there was a video game uh, called Paperboy that was really popular. And so I started, this is it, you know, you can see it right there. That was my life right there. I was out there on the streets trying to chuck that paper right onto the front door. I remember playing that video game on my friend's new Nintendo system and thinking it was so cool. Um, So that was, you know, what I did. On Sunday mornings, it was a little more challenging because Sunday morning papers or like hefty, you know, they're, they're big. There's advertisements in there, there's extra sections. And so I would end up uh, getting the papers together in the garage, and then my dad would help me out on Sunday mornings. He would pull up his uh, Chevrolet Caprice station wagon, and we would drop the tailgate, and we would load all the Sunday papers in the back, and I would jump out of that thing and run around to the houses, uh, you know, dropping those huge pieces of paper, <laughs> piles of paper on their, on their foundations there. And, uh, and then about once a month, I would go out door to door to those who were receiving the newspaper, and I would collect the fees for getting the newspaper. And so when I would do that, I would always... You know, I would shower, and I would wear my best jeans, you know, and I would smile a lot when I was at the door because they would give you tips, you know, if they liked you, if they thought you were doing a good job, you'd get tips. You guys remember this when you would pay your paper, paper delivery guy at the front door? Um, and so that's, you know, that was a big day for me when I went out. I tried to put up my best foot forward, and, uh, you know, I would bring the news to the neighborhood. You know, that was my job, bringing the news to my neighbors. And in that way, uh, I'm a lot like Jesus, you know. <laughs> Because uh, Jesus came to bring good news. He came to bring the news to his neighborhood. You can make an argument when you look at scripture that the major theme of Jesus' teaching ministry when he taught for those three years after he turned around 30, that the main focus of his time was the kingdom of God. That he spoke often about the kingdom of God and what it was and how we got involved with it and, and why it was important. He spent a lot of time. We see it over and over again in the New Testament, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John describing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, this, this kingdom that Jesus came to bring. It wasn't the chief's kingdom, which I hear about a lot these days, uh, but it was an important kingdom in the world. So when Jesus got up to give his first message, the first uh, time he was handed the scroll in the synagogue, the microphone on the Sabbath, he, he said these words, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come, and that is good news, Jesus said. In Luke's telling of, of Jesus' life, he mentions the kingdom 40 different times. Matthew, even more, 50 times in, in Matthew's telling of Jesus' story. This retired money collector for the kingdom of Rome was all about this new kingdom that Jesus was coming to bring, and, and the new king that came along with this new kingdom. Jesus came to spread good news, to deliver a message, to report the, the new thing God was doing in the world, and he didn't ride a bike around his neighborhood, but he walked from city to city, village to village, and shared this amazing news of the kingdom of God with his neighbors and those around him. The the good news is first mentioned in the Old Testament. A lot of what we believe and receive in the New Testament has its anchor in the Old Testament. 
And we see in the Old Testament, the people of Israel are in captivity in uh, Syria and the Persian empire is there and Assyrians have captured them and, and taken them from their home. And their, their homeland, the nation of Israel, the capital city of Jerusalem, are, is broken down. The, the walls around the city have been demolished, and it's open and, and vulnerable to attack. And, and the people were taken away from their homes into this new land where they were held captive. And while they're there, they're, they're seeking God. God, what are you doing? They're sad because their, their homeland is broken down. And yet they're watching the horizon for a messenger, They're waiting for someone to come running into the village, into the town to say, hey, good news. The people of Israel are rising up again. The city of Jerusalem is being rebuilt. The walls are coming up. God is on the move again. And they're waiting for that good news to come. And and the reason they're waiting is because the prophets, those who spoke for God in the Old Testament, the prophets told them that God was going to return, that he was going to make things right, that this time in exile was not going to be for forever. There would be an end point And that God would return. And so they anxiously waited to hear this great news of of God rebuilding the broken city and refreshing the souls of the scattered people. And so Isaiah 52, one of the prophets, he writes these words. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, which is the, the city of Jerusalem, he says, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Isaiah is saying, there's there's good news coming. You're not going to be held captive forever. There will be a return to the city, to your homeland. He continues, he says, burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For, For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. He says, this messenger with beautiful feet is coming. And there's, those feet are beautiful because they're bringing beautiful news, good news. There is hope. The reign of God is going to return The Lord, the king, will return, and the city will be rebuilt. And the king will comfort his scattered people, and he will reveal his power. He'll he'll stretch out his arm. The the arm of God reveals his power and his presence. The good news, it was good news for Israel, and and it's good news for us today. When Jesus stood up that first time in the synagogue, he spoke about the kingdom of God. Luke tells us that, We can see it in clarity as Jesus talks about it. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. And we're going to look at this time when he spoke for the first time on that Sabbath day in the synagogue and and talked about the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. That's where we're going to start. Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River and had then headed out into the wilderness, into the desert for 40 days, sort of like training ground for the next three years of his life when he was going to be preaching and healing and moving around the nation of Israel, around the land. And uh, so he had his basic training in the desert where he was tempted and, and didn't fall, and God provided for him and took care of him. And so he comes back to his homeland of Nazareth. Luke 4, verse 16. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He had a habit of going to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, he's quoting Isaiah, that good things are coming. There is good news. Again, when Isaiah wrote, the people were in captivity. And now in Jesus' day, they're still under captivity, under the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, there is freedom and oppression being, is going to end. Verse 20, then Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. What's he going to say next? He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He says, it is beginning. This good news that Isaiah wrote about, it is beginning. The kingdom of God is coming. Jesus, empowered by the very presence of God, by the spirit of God, proclaimed this good news. This year is the year of God's blessing and favor. The launching of a new movement of God in history. The kingdom of God. So, So what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? This kingdom that Jesus spoke about. Well, it might help you to think about your own life for a minute because you have a kingdom as well. You've got a a sphere of influence. You've got a tribe of people that that you pour into their life and they pour into your life. You you know each other. You've got a sphere where you are able to speak and make things happen. You have a place. It might be a room. could be an apartment, maybe a home. Maybe it's just a van down by the river, right? But you have a place that is yours where you have control. There's things that you can influence and change around you. You can, you can paint a wall, you can put up a poster, you can cook a meal, you can invite somebody over and, and feed them dinner. You can offer someone a ride. There are places and, and areas of your life where you have authority and ownership and control. Even if it's limited, it, it's still yours. It's your little kingdom, your little corner of the world. Well, well, God has a space like that too. God has a kingdom where he has influence and authority and ownership and control It just happens that the space that God controls is everything, everywhere, all around us. Over our own little kingdoms is this greater kingdom of God. Over every other nation, every other kingdom. And the Jewish songwriters would sing about this king, this good king. Psalm 95, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all other gods, his kingdom above every other kingdom. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The mountain peaks belong to him. The sea, that's his, because he made it. In his hands formed the dry land. Everywhere your foot falls, God put that together. The range of God's will holds everything, the depths and the heights, the sea, the land, you and me. He is in control and authority over all of it. Everything we see and experience, this is the kingdom And he is the king. You might be the king or queen of your little kingdom, but he is the king of everything over all kingdoms. It's what he's done in the past. It's what he's doing today. It's what he will be doing in the future. The kingdom is everywhere all the time. You can't run away from it. You can't hide from it. You can't get your hands around it. It is here right now with us. And Jesus used a lot of really interesting object lessons and word pictures to describe the kingdom of God. Jessica read one of those word pictures at the beginning of our time together. Jesus said the kingdom is like a seed that's planted in the ground. It's like a net that catches fish. It's like new wine poured into wineskins. It's like a feast at a wedding. He said the kingdom of God is, is a great treasure. It's like a pearl. It's a vineyard. It's, it's an expansive field of wheat, and it's a small handful of yeast. So all these images help us understand more of 
the kingdom, its influence in our lives, that it is present and yet it is still arriving. It is here and yet it is not complete. It is still on the move. One surprising thing about God as our king is that he shares his authority with us. He has control over all things and then he says, and I want you to have authority. So he, he shares it, that control with us. He invites us into his kingdom and, and invites us to join him in the work. We see it right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter one. God is bringing order to the chaos. He's separating light and dark, organizing space and and sky. He's gathering together water and land. And once things are in order, he begins to share his authority. Genesis 1, verse 16. So God made the, the two larger lights, the sun to rule over the day and the moon to rule over the night. And he also made stars. So God creates. And then he says, sun, you're, you're in charge of the day. You get to govern the day. When you come up, the day begins. Moon, you're to rule over the night. When you come up, the night begins. He begins to share his authority and his influence, even in the created order. And we see Paul writing about this in the, in the New Testament to some of his, his friends in Corinth. He writes a letter to them, and he talks about this God who shares authority with us. And, and he also links it to the creation story. So we see in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writing these words to his friends. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, there's the creation, he made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Paul wrote to many who had seen Jesus and knew him and saw the resurrected Christ and the glory of God reflecting off of his face. He says, We've seen this. And then he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Remember, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a treasure. And Paul hooks onto that image. He says, so we we have this kingdom in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. All-surpassing power of the eternal creator God in these soft, unfinished jars of clay. All the greatness of God in our fragile and limited lives. We're still in process. We haven't been put in the kiln yet. We're still soft clay being used by God to bring about his kingdom We're in his presence, and sometimes we don't even realize it. We're surprised that he would choose to use us to bring his kingdom to earth because we know ourselves, and we're surprised when we see him showing up. And and God surprises us in his kingdom, how he shows up. Tomorrow night, some will be heading back back up to KC for the worship wagon. We go on the second Mondays every month. And, And when we're there, we see the kingdom of God among those who are experiencing homelessness, those who don't have a place to go lay their head, just like Jesus And we see them singing songs of praise and praying and talking about their faith. And the kingdom of God surprises us under that bridge. You can join us tomorrow if you want to. 5.15 in the parking lot. We'll head out there together. God's kingdom surprises us. It shows up in surprising ways. One of Abraham's grandsons, Jacob, was once out in the wilderness by himself alone and had a dream of the kingdom of God. He saw heaven open up. In the morning, he woke up, and, and, he, and the story goes like this. The Lord is, he said, the Lord is certainly in this place, and I didn't even know it. Jacob was surprised by the presence of God. Have you ever been surprised at God's movement in your life, the kingdom of God? Have you ever been caught off guard by the presence of God showing up in surprising ways when you maybe weren't even looking for it, and then there, there it was, the kingdom, right in front of you? About 10 years ago, I had a moment like that. I sat by a pond in Australia as the sun was rising behind me. And my dad had had died the day before in Australia. 
thousands of miles from home. Suddenly, he had started having symptoms from this cancer all throughout his body that we didn't know about about six weeks before. And it, it came on him so quickly, there wasn't time for him to fly back to Colorado. He was in a hospice unit in Australia, so we had to go to him and my mom. And so I sat by his bedside with my mom and my sisters and other family members as he took his last breath and left this world. And the next morning, I got up early before the sun rose, and I grabbed my Bible, and I decided I just got to walk. And so I headed out in the neighborhood. I didn't know. I'd never been to Australia before. I didn't know where I was going. And I just walked through this neighborhood and found a park and, and sat down on this bench by the lake. And the sun began to come up, warm in the back of my neck. And I remember this moment where it just felt like God's kingdom showed up, that God's presence just came. And, and this peace that only God can describe, you know, settled down upon me. And I sat there and I had this thought. And I don't think it's a thought that I put in my own mind. And I didn't hear an audible voice, but I do feel like God put these thoughts in my mind. And, and what I heard him saying was, I am with you. I, have, I will never leave you. I never have and I never will. You are not alone, he said to me. And then my father God said, you are my son. And he reminded me of his goodness in the midst of that loss in that moment for me. And God was there and I didn't even know it. I was surprised at the presence of God. The kingdom of God is here. Do you see it? Are you going to see it today? Will you be looking for it? Jesus said, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be given to you as well. What does it mean to seek God's kingdom? What does it mean to look for his kingdom? Well, some of you guys have your car keys and you've got a little fob on the end of your your car keys that you use to unlock your car. You guys have these? And when you're out at the airport after coming back from a trip or you come out of the game into the, the stadium in the huge parking lot and you forgot where you parked, right, you pull this out and you start hitting that unlock button hoping that your headlights will flash, right? Have you guys have done this? I'm not the only one, right? Yes, okay. And, and when it's really bad, there was one time I was in the um, airport parking lot here in Kansas City and I didn't realize the parking ramp had three levels and I was on the second level and my car was on the bottom level, which I didn't even know existed. I forgot about it. And I, I hit the little red panic button. I'm like, I'm going to make the alarm go off on this bad boy and I'm going to find my car. When you're seeking something, you keep looking until you find it. If, if I couldn't find my car in that airport parking lot, I wouldn't like give up. You know, like if I'm seeking, I'm not going to be like, well, I guess that's it for that car. I can't find it. I don't know where it is. Somebody's going to get a blessing today. You know, like when you are seeking something, you keep looking for it until you find it. You don't stop looking. You continue seeking, exploring, looking for it. It's not like a seven-year-old when they go into their bedroom looking for their toy and they look left and look right and they come back to you and say, I looked everywhere. I can't find it. You know? That's, yeah, right. That is not seeking. That's manipulation from a seven-year-old. That's what that is. <laughs> we are to be seekers of the kingdom of God, actively exploring all the places that he's at work, tirelessly looking for the light he's bringing into our worlds. We want to be part of that movement. He shares it with us. He invites us in. We want to be part of what he's doing in the world, in our lives and the lives of those around us. And if God has a kingdom, it means that he has a throne as well. There's a king and there's a throne. And as a people in the United States, we don't always get this, our minds around this because we don't have a monarchy. We don't have a throne room in the, in the U.S. But there are other, plenty of other nations that have thrones. I brought some pictures this morning of some thrones that you can find in different corners of the world. This first one is the Dragon Throne of China. You can find it in the Forbidden City. It's been there for centuries. And emperors would sit up there and proclaim laws and judgments over the land from this place of authority. It's a pretty impressive looking throne room. This next one is in St. George's Hall, 
uh, in Russia. It's a throne there built in the 1700s. It's St. Petersburg Winter Palace. And at the very top is a, a depiction of St. George battling back the dragon, defeating the dragon. Maybe the dragon throne of China, I'm not sure, but showing his authority over dragons. One more here. This is the throne chair, chair of Denmark. I think this is the coolest one, especially the one on the left. It sat there for centuries, and uh, the one on the left, the white one, they, uh, many, for many years they believed that it was made out of unicorn horns. <laughs> Isn't that great? They thought it might be unicorn horns, and then they realized after doing some research that it was actually narwhal tusks. So... Unicorns of the Arctic Ocean, pretty close, pretty close. Um, But that's a pretty amazing throne. These are places of authority, places where kings and queens make proclamations and make judgments. Uh, The throne reminds the citizens of the kingdom that the king has power to rule, ability to guide, strength to protect, authority over the kingdom. Last week, we talked about Jesus and how he brought healing to those that he encountered, and it showed that he had power over the physical world, that he had authority over our physical diseases and struggles that we go through. Matthew 8, we looked at the story of the man with the skin disease, with leprosy, and I wanted to go back to Matthew 8 this morning because right after that story is this, a story about authority. A centurion comes to Jesus. So if you want to open up to Matthew 8, verse 5, we're going to look at this story just for a moment. This centurion soldier who would have been in charge of about 80 soldiers, who was in charge of training them and keeping them in line and organizing them, and he was under the authority of the Roman Empire or the the emperor of Rome. He would have been under his authority. So he understands this idea of authority, and so he's talking with Jesus. Verse 5, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, the centurion said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly, Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one to go and he goes and this one come and he comes. I tell my servant, do this and he does it. That's authority. You have the ability to move people around, to have them do things. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This non-Jewish centurion, Roman centurion, amazed Jesus in the way of his faith. And it's incredible when you look at how he starts the conversation. He, He comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, that's not a small title. That's not a small name. It would become Uh, law in Rome eventually that you had to refer to the Caesar as Lord. Caesar is Lord is what they would say later on as the early church began. And so when Paul would write to the early church and say, Jesus is Lord, that was a a direct rebellious action against the empire of Rome. And this Roman centurion says, Lord, there's something about Jesus. He saw something in Jesus, a, a power, an authority, a position. And he put himself under Jesus and said, you are my Lord. Lord, you don't need to even come to my house. Just say the words and and things will change because I know you have authority. And this amazed Jesus because, again, this Roman centurion knew things about the kingdom of God that Jesus' friends didn't even, couldn't even get their minds around. The Jewish people couldn't embrace yet. They struggled to understand. We struggled to understand as well. We we struggled to understand authority. And, And authority, how we respond to authority says a lot about the condition of our hearts. Am I able to see my limits and God's greatness? Is my heart humble and open to God's authority and leadership and power over my life? We get confused about freedom. We think freedom is the rejection of authority. Like when I don't have anybody in authority over me, then I'm free. 
But that's not the truth. That's not really what's real because we're always going to be under someone's authority. It doesn't matter how high you rank in life, no matter what position you achieve, you will always be under someone's authority, even if it's God himself under his authority. And freedom is not the rejection of authority. Freedom is, is actually understanding reality. Freedom is the truth of existence, that there is a God and that he has authority over our lives, and we are his kids, we are his sons and daughters. That's the truth, and scripture says the truth will set you free. That's where freedom is when you embrace what is real and true. When you think about this, this God who is our king and has a throne, what kind of throne is, is God sitting on? The writer of Hebrews would describe it for us. Hebrews 4, it says, So let us boldly approach the throne of grace. Then we will receive mercy. We will find grace to help us when we need it. He says, the writer here says, we approach the throne of grace boldly, not because we're so good, because we've earned a position. It's because Jesus has opened up a way for us to be in relationship again with our, with our God, with our King, the creator of the universe. He's opened up a way for us to be in relationship with our loving heavenly Father. And according to this writer, God is sitting on a throne of grace. And I think one of the things that trips us up when it comes to authority, when it comes to the kingdom, is that we think God is sitting on a different kind of throne. We imagine he's on a different kind of throne than a throne of grace. So what kind of throne do you think God is sitting on? Let me give you a couple options that you might be thinking about. Maybe you think he's sitting on an indifferent throne, a throne where God is silent, where we ask him to make a difference in our lives and we don't hear anything in response. And it doesn't seem like he cares all that much about what we're going through. And as we struggle through life and cry out to him for help and there's this silence, it just seems like he's indifferent to us. And you would find some great leaders in the Bible that would agree with you. I think about King David, Psalm 13. He wrote, Lord God, how long must I wait? Will you forget me forever? How long will you turn your face away from me? David just describing how we sometimes feel. But our feelings are not always accurate. Our feelings are not always revealing the truth. The truth is, is that God will never forget you. God will never turn his face away from you. The New Testament tells us that there is nothing in this world, in your life or others' lives, that can separate you from the love of God. That God is always attentive to you and cares about you. And you might say, well, I, why is he not showing up? I haven't heard from him. He's not helping me see that. And I want you to know, God put me here today to tell you that he cares about your life, that he is with you, and he loves you, and he is not indifferent to you. Sometimes we think we're approaching a throne of self-help. We say, you know, I need a better life, better family, better body, so God, you gotta fix it for me. Make things better. We go to God to get a to-do list and an organizational chart to make our, our lives more whatever. We want them to be more purposeful, more productive, more fun, more put together. And on this throne of self-help is a, is a solution for a better life. You're my solution, God, to make my life better. If the throne you're approaching has a mirror on it that just reflects your image, you're not approaching the throne of grace. You're not approaching God. You're approaching something else. God is not a mirror that we use to make our lives better. God is a fire that transforms us and creates in us a new life. Not because we are so good and we've earned it, but because he is God and we are made in his image and he is a good and faithful God. Maybe the throne you're approaching is the throne of condemnation. You don't know much about God, but you're pretty sure that he's not happy with you and he's just waiting for you to mess up so he can bring the hammer down on your life and make things even harder. 
Maybe you see each day as an opportunity to fail God in a new way, and you know he's just waiting for you to mess up. I want you to remember what Jesus said in John 3, 17. Jesus said, God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it is. No, Jesus says he came to help and to put the world right again. Jesus says, I bring good news. I got beautiful feet, Jesus says. I'm bringing good news. That Jesus didn't come to condemn us, but to save us and help us understand what life is all about. God's not wanting to smash you. He's waiting with his arms open wide to welcome you home, to welcome you back. And that's why the writer calls us to approach this throne of grace. God offers us grace and favor and kindness. We don't earn it, we don't deserve it, but it is for us and it is real and it can change our lives. God is not indifferent to our story. He's not a quick fix to sterilize life to some kind of fake perfection. He's not crushing our lives with judgment and condemnation. He is breathing life and hope and promises and power and light and love into our world. God, your Father, your Heavenly Father, sits on a throne of grace and invites you into his kingdom to be part of what he's doing to renew this world, to bring new life and change. So we seek his kingdom. We look for it everywhere. We look for it in our lives, in the lives of our friends, in surprising places, places we wouldn't think we would find God moving, and we look there. We expect that he's doing new things, that his grace is being revealed through our lives and all around us, that he is not sleeping, that God is not distant, that he is working. It's our first thing we do in the morning. It's the last thing we do at night. We seek God first in his kingdom. And when we do that first, the promise that Jesus gives us is that all the other things, all the other issues and concerns of your life, All the things that stress you out, the things you wonder about, all those things will come together in the right way, in the right order, at the right time, under his leadership and his authority in our lives, his kingdom. That's the promise we have. So let's approach this throne of grace together and seek God and ask him to move in our midst in new ways. Let's pray together. I want to invite our worship team to come up, and they're going to, as we pray, they're going to lead us in a song in a moment, and... Also, I know our prayer volunteers are here, so I want to invite our prayer volunteers to come up while we're singing this last song. And if there's something in your life that you would like someone to pray with you about, the volunteers will be right up front here. And they would love to to hear what's going on in your life and pray with you and encourage you and remind you that that you are not alone, that the God is on his throne and he cares about your life. So will you bow your heads and let's pray together. Father God, thank you for being a good and faithful king. Thank you for calling us your sons and daughters, adopting us into your family because of the forgiveness of Jesus. Lord, might we see your kingdom today. Might we open our eyes and look for it. We want to be surprised by your grace, by your movement in our family, in our neighborhood, where we work, where we go to school. We want to be surprised by the good things you're doing and the lives that you're changing Instead of being distracted and busy and hurried around, Lord, might might you help us have time to look and to seek and to find your kingdom. Father God, you invite us to be part of the kingdom, and that truth really just blows our minds, that you would entrust us with authority, with ability, with gifts, with callings, that, that we would be part of the work you're doing in the world today. Help us to see your kingdom and help us to know what you're calling us to be about in your kingdom work today. 
thank you for sitting on that throne of grace. And we do approach you boldly. We have confidence because of what Jesus did when he gave his life for me, for us on that cross, so that we could be forgiven. We lift our voices to you now in song. Thank you, Jesus, for this new life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand. Come up, let us pray with you, and let's sing together.